Welcome to the Future Accords on KTUH University of Hawaii Radio for the cultural and educational enrichment of the students of Hawaii as well as the global community. On this show, we will interview thought leaders to hear about their past, present, and hopes for the future. Join us as we dive into topics around the five P's of sustainable development, people, planet, prosperity, peace, and partnerships. I'm your host, Ari Eisenstadt, and let's explore the future together. Aloha, and welcome to a live special recording of the Future Accords. My name is Ari Eisenstadt, and today we're joined by a very special guest, Professor William Bridges at the University of Rochester and is currently a visiting fellow at the UH Manoa Center for Future Studies. Professor William Bridges, thank you so much for joining us. I'm not sure that I'm a special guest, but I'm thrilled to be with you today. Awesome. Well, uh, today I'm really excited to be talking about the future of the humanities, foresight, and Afro-Asian studies, what your your specialty is. Um, And we'd love to dive into your past experiences, your present projects, and then hear about your vision for the future. Sound good? Yes, thank you for making time to speak with me. Oh, it's really an honor. So first, I would love to ask about your uh, your past educational experiences. How did you get into uh, into academia and uh, future studies, Afro-Asian studies? What, what was your journey like? So I grew up in Austin, Texas. I like to say that my parents, uh, they were part of that second great migration of African-Americans out of the South in the post-war period until about the 1970s. But they went the wrong direction and they didn't get very far. My mom's family is from Louisiana, and my father's family is from Huntsville, Texas, a small prison town in East Texas. And they both moved to Austin in Central Texas in the the post-war period. So I grew up in Austin, and as an Austinite, you study Spanish if you go to public school. That really is pretty much the one and only choice that you have for foreign language study. So I started doing Spanish, and I certainly had a love for foreign languages and literatures and cultures, but I wanted to kind of do something different, right? In that way that young children want to do different things. And it was around that time that I really fell in love with Japanese language and culture. I actually remember in elementary school, I did a science fair project. I saw this um, this video on the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima on the History Channel and did a science fair project on the impact of the bomb based on distance from the epicenter of the bombings. And in retrospect to me, this is just such a morbid or wild thing for an elementary school child to be interested in, like with my colored pencils drawing the the impact of the bomb radius and what have you. Um, But I mentioned that simply to say there was kind of a longstanding interest in things Japanese. So I decided to stay at home for college. I did my undergraduate work at the University of Texas at Austin, um, a proud Longhorn. uh, And that's where I started studying Japanese formally. Um, I took the interest that I developed as a child and really took it into the classroom and just fell in love with the Japanese language and the culture, not to mention the senseis who are always very kind of devoted. And there's something about the less commonly taught languages, right? That experience of kind of being in the trenches with other people who are struggling with this language that is at times uh, very different from their native tongues. There's something about the camaraderie that's kind of involved in those classes um, that I really fell in love with. It's kind of the, the music and the math of the language. 
so because of that, kind of one semester of Japanese snowballed into a year and a year snowballed into five and five snowballed into a PhD. And it's kind of my studies and kind of engagement with the language and culture grew from there. Great. And so then you went on to, to study at Princeton. What was that like? That's right. I did my doctoral work at Princeton. It was difficult. <laughs> to, to describe it in a word, it was difficult. I, I would say my enjoyment of the program started asymptotically close to zero and then grew exponentially over the course of my seven years at Princeton. Um, it's just a remarkably rigorous program, the program in East Asian Studies there. Um, and I went directly out of my undergraduate experience. And that was it was quite a leap. There were several transitions happening simultaneously, right? moving from the South to the North, uh, moving from undergraduate to graduate education, from public to private, um, all of these different kind of institutional environmental transitions happening simultaneously um, made my the earlier moments of my transition difficult. But of course, I wouldn't take those years back or anything. They were, they were formative uh, in their difficulty. So during my Princeton years, I also studied in Yokohama for a year. Um, I did Japanese language boot camp, basically, five days a week, eight hours a day of Japanese training for a year. And I was also a Fulbright fellow, um, where I, a doctoral fellow, where I did research with Waseda University, um, which is right in the heart of Tokyo and surrounded by lovely ramen shops, if you like ramen. Uh, so that was a wonderful experience as well. So I spent some time in Tokyo during my doctoral years. And that's where my, my kind of tangential interest in Afro-Japanese thinking uh, really became, I would say, more kind of formalized and scholarly. So one thing that I, during my undergraduate years, I took classes in Japanese literature. And anyone who knew me and knew that I was studying Japanese literature would say, I came across this novel, or I came across this book, and I want you to take a look at it. And inevitably, the text they wanted me to take a look at tended to feature African-American characters. These were work like Oe Kinzabudo's Shiku, or Murakami Ryu's Kagiri Nakutome Nichikai Blue, and Almost Transparent Blue. Uh, these works that feature in the, these two examples, uh, African-American soldiers and how they're being depicted in works of post-World War II Japanese literature. So I became a kind of de facto library for the representation of African-Americans in Japanese literature by virtue of these recommendations that I received from colleagues in my UT days. So as I started to delve into this topic, I realized rather quickly that post-World War II Japanese authors knew more about African-American literature than I did, right? I had spent my days studying Japanese, uh, whereas they had spent their days really kind of rigorously digging through the archives, uh, learning what they could about kind of American race relations and trying to translate some of those insights into their own situation. So I had to go back and basically re-educate myself uh, in African-American studies so that I could keep up with some of the things that were happening in Japan. And that training started happening fairly seriously and rigorously at Princeton. And I was there at what can be called nothing but a kind of a, a renaissance of Black thinking at Princeton. I mean, this is the moment when the administration moved the building for Black studies right in the middle of campus um, to have this kind of architectural metaphor for the centrality of Black studies at Princeton. And this is a time when Cornel West was there and Annie Glaude was there, Val Smith, who's now Princeton, she's ascended into the clouds and is now Princeton at Swarthmore. You could receive candies out of Toni Morrison's purse because she was around for parties and whatever. Jay-Z and Beyonce were on campus one day. It was just this kind of this time of incredible kind of intellectual bravado and energy around Black thinking at the time. And um, so that was uh, 
uh, this wonderful Anne Chang, who is also on my dissertation committee, and just kind of an incredible group of thinkers. So under their tutelage, I started studying Black studies fairly seriously and brought some of that work into my work in Asian studies, which leads to my first book project. And how did you design and conduct your research in this new area? Right. So I've actually been thinking kind of two directions. There's And this is simply a byproduct of the fact that I don't think there is any one scholar capable of covering just the vast terrain of all that needs to be covered. With the exception, perhaps, of John Russell, who's at Gifu University and just has this encyclopedic knowledge of things Afro-Japanese. So with the exception of John Russell, I don't think any one scholar can do all of this work on their own. I like to think of my research having two different platforms. One kind of cultivating and curating this area of research um, for collaborative thinking, right? And then kind of my own line of research. So I've put together, for example, an edited volume uh, that brings together both scholars in the Japanese Academy who are doing African-American studies and scholars in the American Academy who do Japanese but are interested uh, in kind of triangulating uh, Japan, race, and whatever their field of inquiry might be, anthropology, musicology, what have you. So those kinds of curated works uh, allow me to kind of showcase and be a part of a kind of collaborative investigation of things otherwise I wouldn't be able to carry out on my own. I'm thinking, for example, of a scholar by the name of Marvin Sterling, who's at Indiana University, who is also a contributor to that edited volume, who works on reggae in Japan. And that's a fascinating topic, right? That needs to be kind of thought through very seriously. Uh, But there's my area of expertise that's far beyond anything that I can do, right? So these edited volumes give me an opportunity to kind of showcase that. In addition to that, I have kind of building on some of the insights that I receive in those collaborative spaces were kind of individual monographs. And that's where my my first publication, which is out in February 2020 with the University of Michigan Press, shameless plug there, playing in the shadows, fictions of race and blackness and post-war Japanese literature. That really is kind of my area of expertise. And it's the place where I take really what I'm interested in, which is thinking about narrative and storytelling and kind of the broadest sense of the term and taking that particular field and seeing how Japanese authors have really reimagined what it means to be a racial person or a racialized body in the post-World War II uh, era. So those are kind of the two platforms, if you'd like, that my research takes place on. Great. And what were your major findings in that research? And then how have you taken those findings into now your classes at the University of Rochester? Oh, that's a that's a great question. And so I, I found two things, and I'll say one that's kind of flippant, but also very true. And then how can you get the more sincere finding? The flippant finding is that there was just much more out there than I realized going into this. I mean, I had a few short stories and a couple poems by Okinawan poets in mind and went in and just found a rich, rich archive that goes all the way back before the Meiji Restoration. And I never would have dreamed that there was just such a sustained engagement with kind of Africana, right, and in Japan. And so that was kind of the most surprising finding was just how deep the archive was. It, was, it didn't anticipate doing so much work when I, when I picked this topic. But the more, the more kind of sincere finding is that, and this I think ties into some of the work that I'm doing in the present, there's a way that thinking about kind of Afro-Asia and Afro-Japan really pushes us beyond textualisms and into more hermeneutic approaches Uh, to thinking about, in my case, literary or cultural studies. By that, I mean, 
um, <laughs> this thinking of there is no beyond the text, uh, to borrow Derrida's term. And he means something very particular by that. Uh, and I'm not interested in kind of unraveling the particularity of that per se, but to take a, a kind of simplified version of that idea. Um, it becomes very clear that for authors who are in the post-World War II moment, who decide to say, translate Invisible Man, right? Who put all the time and energy into translating a text that difficult. There very much is a beyond the text for them, right? That is to say, they're not thinking in terms of literature, something that's bound and that remains on the page. Uh, they're thinking about how literature opens up new worlds, right? It kind of opens possible worlds, um, one which we might be able to inhabit. This is what Paul Ricoeur calls reading in front of the text, right? To read a work of literature such that it opens up a space in front of you, and then you try to inhabit that possible space uh, that's been opened by the literary imagination. That was kind of the, the key finding for me, uh, that to take a work um, like those works by O.A. Kinzabudo that I mentioned earlier and consider, say, the representation of African-Americans in those texts. That's an important piece of the puzzle, right? That kind of close, rich textual engagement. Um, but there is a piece that is just as, if not more important in my mind, which is thinking about what happens when that text is out there in the world. When Oe Kinzaburo is attending the Afro-Asian Writers Conference, right, and talking with members of the Cameroonian delegation about the possible future of Afro-Japanese pottery, that piece of his writing, kind of that possible world that's open in front of the text, in my mind, is more important, if not just as important, as the more kind of rich textual readings uh, that had been the kind of the guiding apparatus or kind of the, the major paradigm of Afro-Asian studies um, in years past. So that was kind of my, my, my really true discovery, that I couldn't just read these as works of literature. I had to read them as these kind of hermeneutic pieces of the puzzle, right, that were giving people new ways to imagine the world. And how did that then evolve into your, your new passion and expertise in future studies? So I finished my first project, and I have a, a, a project that's a very kind of organic offshoot of that, um, which is on the Black Pacific, right? If my first book really started from the inside out, right, that is to say, I started on the level of literary sentence, and I'd find a weird sentence in a work of in a novel or a poem, what have you. And I'd say, okay, how do we get this sentence, right? And how does this sentence kind of grow into other sentences and grow into intertextual engagements and that grow into socio-historical moments and what have you, kind of working from the inside out. And that inside out approach, while it has, I think, its methodological benefits, it confined, I think, my scholarly vision, right? And there's a broader story of trans-Pacific circulation of kind of Afro-Japanese culture and thinking that I didn't really tell in that first book. A colleague of mine said, you have to save something for the next book. Uh, so I suppose that was what was going to save for the next book. And that was really the organic next step. And my plan originally was to just write a couple articles on the crisis in the humanities uh, and then go right back to the, the Black Pacific project. But, <laughs> but that kind of brief uh, foray into the crisis in the humanities has now exploded into another full-blown book project and a curricular project at the University of Rochester and eating up all of my time in the library. So it's no longer just like a, a moonlighting thing. It's now out in broad daylight. But really what happened is I wanted to take that idea that I posed in the Playing in the Shadows book and kind of scale that up to the level of the humanities writ large, by which I mean 
there are any numbers of defenses of the humanities, right, that one could propose. And I, just to be clear, like to think of this in ecological terms, and there's kind of an ecosystem of defenses, and we'll need every defense we can get, right, to kind of articulate the public value of the humanities as a common good. To uh, synthesize these various kind of the the common defenses of the humanities that one hears. And by the way, I'm thinking now through scholars such as David Goldberg or Helen Small um, or Renz Bodd, who have kind of synthesized the kind of the kind of defenses of the humanities that we propose. There is kind of the economic case. One could make the case for kind of the skills that one gained and how they would translate into the marketplace. There is the Stanley Fish style kind of allotelic. The humanities for their own sake, one gets pleasure, and that's what you get. <laughs> that's what that's more than enough to make the case. Um, there's the civic case. Uh, this is the kind of the Martha Nussbaum style approach. And then there's the case which I would suggest probably has the most purchase, um, the, the critical thinking approach. Thinking about the humanities as a venue for kind of expanding public reason, to borrow David Theo Goldberg's articulation of kind of the, the critical thinking aspect the humanities provide. Again, I wouldn't suggest that we privilege any one of these over the other. I think that we need to take all four and move from defenses of the humanities to offenses of the humanities. Think of ways to really getting more people to kind of score some points for why, why we need the humanities in the public sphere. What I wanted to do in my kind of my contribution to that conversation is to highlight Perhaps a subset of that critical thinking approach, um, or perhaps a fifth argument on its own, and we could kind of think through the best way to articulate that. But that addition would be the expansion of the imagination, right? There's a way in which a part of what the humanities does is not just allow us to critique what's happened in the past and the present, um, but allows us to reimagine what happened, what might happen in the future. There is a speculative component to the humanistic inquiry, to borrow Helen Small's articulation from the value of the humanities. That piece, it seemed to me, had been kind of sublimized, right? It hadn't been as articulated as clearly. It's certainly there, right? And you certainly get humanistic thinkers doing that kind of work. Richard Rorty is the first one who comes to mind, just kind of off the top of my mind, where he has his looking backwards from the year 2096, right? Here we are his work, philosophy in the future. We have a philosopher that's really kind of wrestling um, with the way thinking through the humanities uh, can help us kind of think through futures. But it seemed to me that that case for the humanities hadn't been made. So I wanted to do that, kind of think, how do the humanities help us think about the futures better? So I thought, I wonder if there's a group of folks who are interested in thinking about the futures uh, and kind of stumbled upon the field of futures and found this 75 plus year archive of really rigorous research on how one can think well about the futures. And I took the, I like to think that I'm fairly well read, uh, emphasis on like to think. I realized that there's always more reading to do. Um, but the fact that I had not come across uh, future studies as a fairly well read scholar in the humanities, I took that as a signal, right? <laughs> that is a signal uh, that, to borrow Wendell Bell's thoughts from the, um, the his first volume of the Foundations of Future Studies, the project that he sets of futurizing other fields, that work hadn't been going very well, right? <laughs> if someone could read the way that I read, right, in kind of the various fields that I'm interested in and have never heard of future studies, given the importance of the field, it felt to me that something was missing. So now I'm kind of working, doing what I can to bring some of that futures thinking into the humanities in a meta-disciplinary, to borrow Richard Slaughter's term, way. 
Fascinating. And what led you to come uh, to the University of Hawaii Center for Future Studies? And what has your experience been like here? I came here because I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) I needed to meet people like you who do know what they're doing when it comes to future studies. Um, My work had been more or less autodidactic. Um, And as you know, I'm just kind of preaching to the choir. Futures thinking is not something that you can do on your own. It doesn't work very well when it's autodidactic. And even when it does work, it gives you these kind of perverse, limited futures. Um, So I just kind of needed a a group of people who could kind of walk me through this. So I contacted Jerry Grove, the current director of the Futures Research Center at Hawaii, really out of the blue, out of nowhere, and said, teach me. Um, And he was just incredibly gracious um, in addition to being a remarkable and capacious thinker, he's also a good human being, um, which is sometimes can be hard to find both of those qualities in one entity. Um, but Jairus does that with kind of incredible grace and insight. And he has been kind of plugging me into future studies, the kind of the Hawaii um, alternative futures approach to future studies. So that is what brings me to Hawaii, kind of studying the archives that we have here. But really more than that, listening to future studies in action, right? Rather than listening to it collaboratively, um, rather than reading about it on my own, which wasn't getting me very far. That's great. And so now in looking at the future, you're designing a new undergraduate program, a major in future studies. How are you designing a program from scratch like that? Uh, (laughs) I don't know. When I do, though, I'll tell you. Um, The first thing to say is that it's been remarkably collaborative. I feel that I'm somewhat underqualified to spearhead this initiative, but given the absence of anyone else spearheading it, I'm just kind of the figurehead and less of the spearhead. I'm the placeholder uh, until there is someone who can actually lead an initiative such as this. What I hope to do is to create enough space and collaborative thinking that one day someone who actually knows what they're doing can come in and kind of hit the ground running. And so what I'm doing then is kind of pulling various pieces of the university together. Uh, We have collaborators in the Simon School of Business, for example, in engineering, in in physics, in our studio art and emerging practices field, in addition to our humanistic social studies, the anthropologists, for example, and a variety of collaborators from the humanities, um, historians, philosophers, um, English, literary critics, uh, modern languages and cultures, what have you. So getting all of these people in the same room and telling them, essentially, you've all at one case or another thought about the futurity in a kind of piecemeal way, in a kind of disciplinary way. What would that look like in an undisciplined way, for lack of a better word, or a kind of transdisciplinary way? Um, To take, for example, we have one scholar in the anthropology department who works on the future of adoption, right? And there's a way in which adoption is a topic that's remarkably kind of shot through with futures thinking. So this scholar has a particular understanding of futurity that's informed by her research as an anthropologist working on adoption. We have a philosopher uh, who is interested in environmental ethics, which has given him another kind of way of thinking about the futures. Um, We have partners in business who teach um, kind of speculation, right? That's another way of kind of thinking, another methodology, if you like, for thinking about futures. If we were to get all of these people in the room and say, we want to design a minor such that every student, ideally, who is on this campus would benefit, right, from studying both the futures and humanities and triangulating that with whatever else they might be doing, be it business or physics or what have you. What would that look like? Um, So really kind of collaborative kind of workshop approach 
to putting together a minor in future studies that will ideally reach across the campus is the, the goal or the hope. Wow. And Rochester is famous for their STEM programs, for their business programs, um, but also being able to combine that with the humanities. And you talk a lot about the crisis in the humanities. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that crisis and how do we solve for it? Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a really rich question. Kind of the, the first thing that comes to mind for me when we say the crisis in the, the humanities is that it seems to me that the, the crisis, the preposition is wrong. Right, right. The crisis isn't in the humanities. The crisis is elsewhere and everywhere. Right, and the humanities are just kind of dealing with the reverberations of very real crises uh, that are happening in in other places. Uh, just to give you one quick example, to kind of informed by your thoughts on the current situation of study at Rochester, the precipitous decline in humanities majors. Uh, to borrow the term that one of the kind of the articulation of one of my deans. That decline in the study of the humanities, that crisis is not in the humanities per se, right? It reverberates to us in that when we have fewer enrollments, then uh, the powers that be breathe down your neck and what have you. But that crisis comes well before our students hit our campus, right? That crisis comes when we as a society think about the value of the humanities, right? Um, When... Our current administration suggests that the National Endowment for the Humanities should be defunded. Uh, To me, that's the crisis. Uh, When the populace is persuaded by that argument that we should not have the humanities as a public good, to me, that's the crisis. There's a crisis in anything. That's where it is. It's in the public square. Um, It just happens to reverberate to the humanities. If that premise is correct, then it seems to me that a part of the solution, right, if not necessarily the solution, but a part of the solution is for humanists to go to the crisis, right, to go to where the crisis actually is. If it's in Congress, then that's where we need to be, right? We need to, for example, train students in political science who will be our next congressperson, who will have a different vision of the humanities. That's how you solve for the crisis in the humanities. You don't solve for it by boosting enrollments in my modern Japanese literature class. That's a Band-Aid, right? For someone who has a severe flesh wound to borrow Shakespeare, right? <laughs> we need to solve for what actually is going on. Um, and, and that is where the kind of the futures minor and the other activities uh, that we have planned at Rochester come into play. Taking this university, which as you suggest, has kind of world-class conversations in fields beyond the humanities and tying those into the humanities uh, by way of the forethoughtfulness that humanistic inquiry provides. Wow. And so what is your vision for the future of this humanistic foresight uh, program that you're developing? What would you like to see come out of it? So uh, the first thing that I have is a a catchy acronym, right? Because um, at heart, I'm a literary critic. And as long as you have that, that, that's what you need. So right now, the ultimate goal is 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, there will be an institute for the development of for thoughtful humanistic inquiry, right? An institute, I, of the development, D-E, of for thoughtful, F, humanistic, H, inquiry, I, or an I of Delphi, right? right? So that's that's the first thing you need. <laughs> a catchy a catchy title. Um, so so that's the, the goal, to really institutionalize the, the place of humanistic forethought at the University of Rochester. And I hesitate here because I I want to be clear with what I mean by institutionalized. 
I don't necessarily mean that there will be 20 years from now a, a Rochester school uh, of forethought that does things in a particular way. Uh, what I'm interested in institutionalizing is this particular space, right, where you have people um, who, when they think Rochester, they think, oh, there's a place for me to engage with both the humanities and future studies simultaneously. Such an institute, in my mind, would work on a variety of levels. Uh, that is to say, there would be a place for undergraduate uh, training and kind of the foundations of future studies. Uh, this is where the minor that we're working on now comes into play. There would be a platform for community engagement. I hope one day we will find someone generous enough to sponsor uh, scholarships for students who are interested in taking their training in the humanities and doing good for the futures of the Rochester community. So that kind of community engagement happening at the undergraduate level. Hopefully there will be a place for postdoctoral fellows, um, kind of future fellows who are doing research, uh, who kind of serve as the lifeblood of kind of reinvigorating what's happening in the future studies there at the University of Rochester. Such an institute would also house various initiatives that would be geared more towards scholarly exchange. Um, so a professor of forethought, for example, an endowed professor of forethought, which H.G. Wells asked us for in 1932. Uh, so maybe by 2032, we'll have caught up <laughs> with this suggestion uh, that we should have professors of forethought. It would be the home of an academic journal. The Journal of Cultural Possibilities is the tentative title right now. Annual Symposia on Futures Thinking, say the future of democracy or the future of war or of race or what have you, in which scholars from the humanities uh, would engage with other scholars on this kind of shared topic of futuristic concern. So moving then from the community, so in that sense, from pre-K to all the way up to scholars, kind of this, um, this 3D platform for thinking futures and the humanities, um, an institutionalized place for that kind of thinking, uh, is what I hope will, many, many years from now, when we look back on this conversation I hope we'll be able to say that's what's come to be. Brilliant. Do you have any any resources or can direct people that want to get involved in something like this? Can you point them to any any place online that they can learn more and and contribute? Yes, I think I can do that very well because I am a neophyte. I'm so new to the field that like I have all of these examples. So like, this is how you can learn if you want to catch up. The Teach the Future organization, uh, which is head run by Peter Bishop, who is affiliated with the University of Houston Strategic Foresight program um, has been an invaluable research resource for me as far as just kind of getting the basics. Um, it's very well uh, organized and curated, their resources. So I would highly recommend that. There are also various uh, resources online. Coursera, for example, has a series of five courses on Teach the Future, um, which has been, which is offered by the Institute of the Future out in um, the, the Bay Area. That also has been an invaluable resource for me. Going back to that idea of the future is being better studied and kind of collaboratively, if that is the case, those kind of online courses give you an opportunity to really hear what it sounds like to think the future's. Uh, and it sounds so much better when there's a multiplicity of what well, is kind of this democratic approach that online platforms can sometimes provide uh, versus them kind of doing your work on that, on your own. So those two um, are the first that come to mind. They've been very helpful for me. And, and of course, your publications, which we uh, look forward to to seeing when when they come out. So thank you. Uh, thank you for suggesting those as well. Well, hopefully they'll be helpful. I can guarantee that the other resources I've mentioned will be helpful. <laughs> I promise that mine will be, uh, but I hope that those will 
further the conversation insofar as they will create a space where people will begin to think about this who might not have otherwise considered it. So if you are, say, doing literary theory, you might think, why would I want to do futures? Hopefully my work will give you a sense of how the literary studies could be informed by future studies. Wonderful. Well, Professor William Bridges, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your brilliance and insight on these fascinating topics. We hope to have you back again in Hawaii soon uh, and looking forward to seeing this program at Rochester. And thank you for having me. Um, The next time we talk, I'll have to remember to let you talk. (laughs) I apologize. I got so excited. I just kind of went on and on about the various initiatives that we have going. But in the future, let's have a conversation rather than a monologue from me. (laughs) It's really an honor to learn and and listen to you. We all really appreciate it and looking forward to being in touch soon. Aloha. Thank you for having me.